Welcome back to season two of Soundlore, the official podcast of Indiana University's Department of Folklore and Ethnomusicology, where we sound off about recent scholarship, ideas, and current happenings from the fine folks who have crossed paths with our department. My name is Jeremy Reed, and today I'm joined by Dr. Barty Cabrea with Sugash Nupane joining as guest host. Dr. Cabrea is currently a visiting assistant professor here in our department. In his words, his work considers Indic and Islamic devotionalisms within, between, and beyond the region of Bengal, and increasingly amongst Bengali pluralities across Bangladesh, East India, the Bay of Bengal, and beyond. For over a decade, he worked as program manager for the Frank Institute of the Humanities, directed the South Asian Music Ensemble in the Department of Music at the University of Chicago, where he also received his PhD in 2019, and also taught tabla as well as organizing courses, workshops, and symposia on South Asian music for the Calapriya Center for Indian Performing Arts. Dr. Cabria is a performer of the North Indian tabla, the Bengali Dotara Lut, and sings in a variety of languages. At the present, Dr. Cabrea joins us today for a conversation with Suyash Nupane, one of our PhD students in ethnomusicology. Suyash can be found cooking synthwave and listening to food. Maybe I got that wrong or maybe I got that right. Find out the answer to that riddle on a future episode. Thank you both for joining us today and take it away, Suyash. Thank you, Jeremy. That was um, awesome and very kind of you to introduce um, both of us. I would like to also mention that Dr. Kibrea's bachelor's degree was from our own Indiana University in 1998. Um, Dr. Kibrea, welcome to this episode of Sound Lore. Um, and I'm glad that Zoom is here to bridge our distance here. So you're in Chicago, I'm in Bloomington. And as a fellow South Asianist, it feels great to have you here. Um, so yeah, Dr. Kibrea, welcome to this episode. Thank you for having me. I'm, I'm delighted to be here and to talk with you today, Siyash. For the audience, um, Dr. Kibre and I, uh, we did meet earlier in preparation for this um, um, interview of sorts, and we both thought of this podcast as an opportunity to um, get to know Dr. Kibre's work and research, and it's also meant to be a dialogue of sorts, uh, if you will, to look into, to remember, and to share our um, versions, our remembrances, and, and stories of, of, of South Asia. Um, so I, I want to begin by situating, um, uh, you know, Bloomington. Um, Dr. Cabrera, you've been here as a student um, and now as a visiting professor um, in Bloomington. What changes uh, speak to you the most visiblest uh, or loudest? Um, and the second part of the question is, what was or is your favorite eatery or food space in Bloomington? <laughs> uh, thank you. Those are great questions. Um, uh, taking your second question first, I'm not sure that I can adequately uh, respond yet, having not become all that familiar with a lot of the eateries um, yet, um, but I'm looking forward to exploring them um, and definitely could use some of your feedback. Um, but I'll, uh, going to the first question, um, well, let me answer more broadly. I think the, one mm -hmm. of the reasons I wanted, uh, I was attracted to come to Indiana University as um, a college student, and one that I'm reminded of now in this visiting appointment is um, simply because of, of, of my work in Bangladesh. And our department actually has a very long uh, history with um, scholars and the literati um, from Bangladesh um, over 
decades, actually. Um, um, people, uh, scholars from Bangladesh coming here as, through visiting appointments or getting their PhD, particularly in folklore, mm -hmm. going back and working in places like the Bangla Academy in Dhaka, which is kind of this bastion of folkloric research there. Scholars who really helped define um, the importance of, of Bengali Muslim folklore in particular and um, its relevance for the newly emerging nation state of Bangladesh. Um, but even going back to 1951, I believe, when the national folk poet of, of Bangladesh, Joshimuddin, was invited here. So there's this, you know, this long uh, and amazing um, connection with Bangladesh and Indian University that has always been a draw for me and continues to be one. Yeah, that's so awesome. I think you, you know, just answered the the second question that I had, which was basically, what brought you to to Indiana University and ethnomusicology in general? And it's fascinating that you mention um, this sort of long history of uh, scholarly exchange uh, between Indiana University and and um, students from Bangladesh, um, which is something that I. Um, was interested in my very first semester uh, as a South Asianist. I'm always looking at who are the uh, pioneers who've been here before me um, and in what ways uh, can I get to know more about them. And I think that's such an amazing um, thing you pointed out. And I'd be more interested in that um, in the future to learn more from you. Um, and, and like moving on to, to like I said, you, you did answer uh, a question I had already. Um, and of course, you must have heard this question from many students uh, who are, you know, prospective students in ethnomusicology or people um, across, you know, uh, multidisciplines. Because I, I do, you know, look at your CV and I sort of understood that you're working in, in many um, academic or, or scholarly spaces. Um, given your varied interests, uh, primarily in, in, in devotionalism and music making, um, making in South Asia, especially Bengal, Bangladesh, uh, the areas uh, around the Bay of Bengal, um, public humanities and experiential ethnography, amongst others. Um, given this multidisciplinary focus, how would you define or, or describe your method or your approach uh, to ethnomusicology? I think for me, um, one of the fundamental things um, way that I define myself is, um, uh, like you, Suyash, I, I am also a performer of, of a certain kind. And um, it, I always feel a little inadequate when I am just presenting myself as an ethnomusicologist and, and not a performer or vice versa. Um, I don't see the two as um, uh, that I can extract one from the other. And I don't have an issue with that. Um, but for me personally, I have always explored the two um, together, and I think that has ultimately affected uh, everything that I do um, in terms of my research. Um, and the, one of the ways that it's 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 shown up uh, in the past, for example, you you mentioned um, my work directing an ensemble, and you know when I directed an ensemble at the University of Chicago, I basically saw the ensemble as a classroom and I saw whenever I was in a classroom as sort of being in an ensemble, um, you know, and not to do this sort of perfunctory show and tell with instruments, but to actually try to engage um, in a way, um, bringing those two, those two things together. 
um, in a way that was meaningful to, to students or listeners. Um, so, you know, I think above everything else, that's probably the, a fundamental thing um, as I navigate my way uh, through, through my career. Yeah, um, I'm, I'm reminded of um, Dr. John Bailey's um, approach to ethnomusicology where he sees performance as an ethnographic tool. Um, um, and are, are you sort of hinting also towards the idea that uh, by performance you uh, sort of ethnographize or, or do your ethnography? Um, and in the same way, by performance, you are translating your ethnographic experience uh, to your students, uh, to, your, to the listeners. And, and to other folks who are interested in, in South Asian music, if I got that correctly? Yeah, we were, I mean, we were just talking a second ago um, before the interview about how everything is an ethnography um, and sort of going along that line, I, you know, I've always felt that way. And, um, you know, with, with regard to sort of my, my interest in, in public facing work, I think there's a, a great deal of energy and productive um, things that can be brought to the table when you think in that way. I was once involved um, in um, a performance where we sang a variety of, of um, devotional songs. And um, I won't go into how the actual performance was put together, created, but it was very much a combination of, of these two things. And we performed in a, um, a public space that was a, um, a chapel so kind of a non-denominational space. And it ended up um, allowing two student bodies on campus that had never really talked to one another to become a part of the dialogue, which was the Hindu Students Association and the Muslim Student Association. People from these two uh, associations ended up becoming sort of the MCs for the event. Um, and I think it was pr primarily because of our approach that allowed something like that to happen and become so productive. Yeah, um, and also for the for the audience, um, and you know, this question is briefly for most of us that are largely unfamiliar with um, South Asian music in general or or um, uh, Muslim music making um, in the areas that you described. Um, I think we'd really appreciate your insights on on what your ethnographic research uh, was was focused on. Um, or your ethnographic experiences uh, are drawn from uh, in this regard, with regards to performance, of course, as well. Yeah, um, well, perhaps this is uh, maybe the segue into just telling uh, the audience about what I what I work on in general, and then we can yeah. we can um, go back and, and continue to talk about these issues. Maybe I should start with what got me interested in in, in Bengal to sort of rephrase your question a bit, if that's okay. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, I guess three things um, were uh, what got me started in it and uh, my, my research. Um, uh, the first uh, had to do with um, just the existing scholarship on, on Bangladesh and particularly Mus Muslim Bengal um, and um, how um, very one-sided I felt uh, so much of it was and in some sense continues to be you have these sort of um, very deeply engaging and wonderful, but often very philological studies of pre-modern Bengali literature, Muslim Bengali literature, when Muslim Bengali literature started to formate in a significant way. Um, but these sorts of works don't really look a lot at contemporary forms of expression. They're very historical. 
And on the other hand, you have this sort of burgeoning body of, um, of, of works on popular politics in Bangladesh. Uh, and the inverse is true for them. In, in, in many cases, they're not really aligning their um, discussions with any sort of endearing form of poetic expression that has existed through the ages. And so um, my interest initially stemmed from that, you know, thinking about shouldn't, isn't there a way, isn't there something I can study in Bangladesh that, that, that takes these two um, ends of the continuum and put them together in some meaningful way. Um, and um, so that was um, certainly a particular, uh, a particular thing um, that, that informed my interest in, in Bangladesh. Um, and, and the other thing was, was a little bit more personal, which was just, you know, growing up, I think, in, in a, a, a Bangladeshi-American home where, um, you know, my uh, Bangladeshi heritage and music and the cultures and traditions were very much celebrated, but so was, you know, my Muslim identity. And um, there were questions that I had, I think, growing, growing up. Um, you know, uh, Bangladeshis are largely Sunni Muslims. Uh, and Sunni Islam being a very large and vast uh, group of people. Um, you know, I remember going to mosques when I was a kid and just, you know, seeing this amazing sea of people which had very, didn't have a lot in common with one another. It's just an extremely divergent group of people. And so, you know, defining what I was as a Muslim uh, became really kind of a, a complicated thing. And certainly uh, um, sort of making sense of um, my Bangladeshi identity as a non-Arab Muslim and uh, in a culture and in a tradition which is, um, you know, Bangladesh nationalism is, uh, it has a very strong secular feel to it. You know, this is uh, a nation that fought a war against another Muslim entity, that of Pakistan. Um, and um, there are many, many complex ways in which being Bengali and being Muslim um, is really hard to, to navigate through. So this was another sort of element of uh, more personal element in my life that got me interested in, in doing research in Bangladesh. Um, in terms of the actual work that I do, um, so um, I basically work on a particular community of uh, musicians in Bangladesh that are called Boyatis. And um, they mostly perform at um, shrines, Sufi shrines in Bangladesh. Um, but what is so interesting about uh, the particular performance tradition is that it's, um, it's very dialectical in nature. In other words, there are two Boyati musicians who sort of engage in a back and forth kind of debate, musical debate. Um, and I should say that it's not entirely devotional in nature. It takes on many topics. Um, so I sort of became interested in this idea of how something that could be so competitive and so sportive might be um, understood as devotionalism. Um, and it's also one that obviously because of its dialectical sort of feel uh, engages with um, the alterity and the, the differences and the confusions that are part of the subjectivities that are part, the part of the subjectivities of being a Bangladeshi. So that's how I got into it. Yeah. Yeah, thank you uh, for, for, you know, describing, uh, like setting your experience and situating your experiences uh, with a larger um, sort of approach and a ethnographic method. Um, I, I would like to touch upon something that you just mentioned, 
Um, and I think we, we did talk a little bit about this, you know, prior to this podcast about um, the multiplicities of ethnomusicological uh, sort of uh, methodology or experiences. So you mentioned that you found uh, Muslim scholarship. Um, some, what drew you to ethnomusicology was, you know, finding that Muslim scholarship was one-sided. Um, are you sort of referring to, um, I'd like to be sort of, you know, uh, elucidated a bit, but was this one-sided as in disciplinary focus of philological approach? Um, or, or would you mean one-sided as in the lack of people uh, from within Bangladesh whose experiences was being explored and expressed by non-Bangladeshi ethnomusicologists? I'm thinking more of the, um, the plural ethnomusicologies um, and, and our brief conversation about that. Yeah, I think um, uh, what I was really referring to was a, a sort of a more disciplinary angle. Um, regardless of who was actually doing the work. Um, and um, when I first started working on, on, on in Bengal, what I noticed is, you know, the, in, in, inevitably the, the sort of literature that I came up with was extremely philological in, in its base, which is to say looking at, at a literary tradition. Um, and, um, you know, Bengal has a very renowned literary tradition, so it's an obvious place to start. But um, I think um, in the process, so much work still remains focused on that particular angle of scholarship. Um, and also, I'm, I'm also thinking, um, uh, since you mentioned, um, you know, uh, Bangladesh's uh, war with Pakistan with an, another uh, Muslim nation, um, in, in my experience, and, and you, you can choose to not answer this question because I, I do realize it's a very sensitive topic, uh, um, in my experience, much conversations about the uh, the trauma of partition focuses largely on India and Pakistan. Um, but I, I I also sort of looking harking back at my own own sort of academic training and and whatnot, the the experience of Bangladeshi subjectivities uh, does not get brought up or is not brought up. Um, I'm I'm wondering how that erasure of the experience of the trauma affects um, ethnomusicological explorations or ethnographic understanding of Bangladesh um, and the larger uh, Bengali communities uh, across borders. Um, given, you know, the, the, the focus that the drama of partition is, is you know, the Batwara of 1947 tends to largely highlight India and Pakistan. Uh, but then, um, what you said, you know, the, there is the other side as well um, that is not being brought up here. And I'm wondering how much of that sort of um, affects the, the ethnomusicological or ethnographic understanding of, of people who look at uh, South Asia in general. Well, I think, I mean, in terms of my own research with this debate genre, I think part of the debate's charm is, is its absurdism. Um, it's um, you know it's it's a debate about rhetorical questions that are not that cannot be ultimately answered, and and the charm of the debate is not really about answering the questions but about navigating a way through, and and finding some sort of um, the, the the charm is in the debate itself the attacks and the counterattacks, and certainly um, liberation politics has a great deal to do with that amb ambiguity. Um, I'm not an expert on on this particular matter, but you know suffice to say. Um, it was a nine-month war of, uh, that happened. 
with Pakistan ultimately um, resulted in the victory for Bangladesh with the aid of India. Um, but there were many residual angsts that came out of that particular experience, partic especially um, a sort of a sense of, 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 of justice of, 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 the, of the atrocities that happened. You know, it's memorialized as a genocide, um, the justice which didn't happen quickly or, and in many cases never happened at all. Um, people who, um, who were uh, considered perpetrators that, that left or disappeared or um, were brought to justice in some cases many, many decades later at a very old age. Um, so, um, you know, I think there is this sort of um, liminalness that also uh, affects the way in which Bengalis view piety. Those things are connected. Um, and for me, um, and I'm taking your question into a slightly different direction now, um, where I found that to be particularly poignant was at shrines, which is where this particular debate happens. And um, what I found so interesting about shrines is that um, shrines in Bangladesh are like, this is this is amazing like sonic landscape of very this very pointillistic piety. And that's not particularly unique to, to South Asia. Shrines throughout um, South Asia can be very diverse. But in Bangladesh, you have um, such a, um, a variety of different kinds of shrines and different kinds of practices that happen. And while there are confrontations, they're mostly coexisting with one another. Um, you have you know, very renowned shrines. You have very obscure shrines. You have very popular ones. You have very contentious ones. You have rural ones. You have urban ones. Um, um, you know, so all these different things come together. And I think they, in some, some way, have become a platform uh, to musically express all these different sort of residual angsts that are part of being uh, being a Bangladeshi. Thank you so much, um, and I think uh, for for all of us, you know, that's in um, that's something that's very enriching in, in our own understanding, um, and something to be I I would say you know mindful about. Um, like I said, as as somebody growing up in Nepal and studying at the musicology, there are so many things um, that I was not aware that I wished I was aware. Um, and but there's always uh, learning opportunities. And thank you for explaining that, Dr. Kebrea. Um, I would now sort of move on to um, something related, but but you know, thinking of um, the aspect of liminalities and coexistence that you brought up uh, made me think of a question that does. Uh, draw uh, on your uh, your musical and and academic trainings and and performances. Um, in in our conversation prior, um, you mentioned earlier that your training in both Hindustani classical music um, at the uh, Ali Akbar uh, School of Music and and uh, folk music uh, in 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 Bangladesh. Um, and I'm thinking of you know given the historical and cultural imaginations and practices. Of these two, um, these musical spaces um, of classical and folk traditions, um, how do you situate your 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 research and ethnography? To to me, um, as someone trained in Hindustani classical music, Nepali folk music, and then ethnomusicology, there's sort of myriad of ways in which I often think of how learning experiences were different in 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 these three uh, traditions or pedagogy, um, if you will. Um, or even how ethnomusicologists sort of 
discuss uh, Hindustani classical music or Nepali folk music um, and, and things like that. So uh, I did wanted to sort of ask you about, you know, what has been your um, differences or, or what has been your similar experiences or different experiences in, in learning music um, across these these traditions? Yeah, I can I can talk a little bit about that, maybe speaking with a specific instrument since you mentioned tabla. Yeah. Um, I'll start more broadly and then I'll kind of hone in a little bit and I'll try not to be too long-winded about it. But <laughs> um, uh, my father plays tabla and tried to teach me at a young age and I, I think essentially wanted nothing to do with it until I was older. Um, and um, when I spent, so I, I basically learned from a, a variety of different people, you could say. And um, Suyash, you know this very well, but for the benefit of our broader audience, you know, classical tabla drumming is, you know, one of the ways that it's often thought of in, in, a, in a more traditional format is through what are called garanas, which are, you know, um, lineages, if you want, and, and, and particular schools or traditions of tabla playing. They go back to specific, specific um, regions of South Asia where they developed, but they became styles in and of themselves with the legacies of particular um, artists and uh, approach, approaches to, to playing and drumming. And um, there are, you know, today six major karanas of tabla that people usually refer to, and um, none of those are geographically located in Bengal. Um, despite the fact that Bengal is cer certainly Kolkata, is a, a historical place for um, the sort of sponsorship and development of Indian classical music. Um, so I initially navigated my way through um, learning tabla through this karana system, but also not learning in one particular karana, which is, you know, generally speaking, not something you do. You stick to one and you develop and learn a sort of an understanding of the intricacies of one particular tradition. Then, as I, you said, I went to, um, to California and I studied a little bit there uh, in a sort of master class setting. But, you know, my tabla, um, I, I feel like my tabla style has changed and evolved as I've become more, uh, developed a more intimate understanding of music in Bengal, because I began to realize that there are many forms of tabla that are beyond karana. Um, and I feel most comfortable in that space um, because I'm in this particular musical world. Um, I feel like in Bangladesh, um, there is um, all kinds of interesting complications with tabla playing. Some of them unspoken, some of them may not even be like, they're, they're subliminal. I think, um, and I mentioned to, to this to you in, in previous conversations, I think to a certain extent, even though Indian classical music, which of course is not called Indian classical music in Bangladesh, it's usually called Uchango Shongit, which just means classical music, but it's essentially the same tradition. Um, there are many people interested in this tradition, many people who play it, but at the same time, there is a historical um, relationship with it being associated with sort of Hindu musical proclivities. I think because Hindu Bengalis in particular were fundamental to the um, developments in Indian classical music um, in the sort of uh, post-British era. Um, so that's, that's a complication. And in Bangladesh, of course, there is, a, I, I think, a, a, a much more stronger emphasis on uh, sort of musical vernacularism as being a part of what it means to be Bangladeshi. So tabla, which is, of course, seen as a very ubiquitous drum there, as it is elsewhere in South Asia, is played in a completely different way. 
It's not considered classical, it's not considered not classical, it's just considered tabla. And you play tabla, and uh, it incorporates different genres of devotional music in Bengal, such as Bengali Kirtan, which has its own rhythms. It's indebted to the legacy of poets like Rabindranath Tagore, who um, kind of dabbled in, um, in, in classical music, but also kind of made it his own. You know, he, he created his own ragas. He sometimes created pieces and said, this is my version of Tintal, and this is how I, I want it to be played. And those things, you know, Tagore has such an amazing and such a strong and legendary impact on Bengali modern music. So these things have influenced the style of, of tabla playing in Bengal. Not to mention today, if you go and see a session musician at a studio in Bangladesh, they will probably be playing the tabla and next to them playing like the Roland Hand Sonic or some sort of um, drum pad. And again, it's not considered necessarily a modern uh, or some sort of fusion performance. It is just considered tabla. And so these things, I think, um, have affected the way I've, I've played um, as I've gotten to understand the music of the region. Uh, and I think the, the other half of the question was um, this sort of myriad or, or sort of the, 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 how, how that pedagogy or how that learning experience differs to how, how ethnomusicology sort of sees um, tabla drumming. Um, yeah, right. Sorry. Yeah, I, I forgot about the other part. So, I mean, you know, naturally there's, there's this association with, with uh, tabla as, as an, as an, uh, particularly classical instrument, despite the fact that we all know that it, it is an instrument that is used in so many different forms uh, in South Asia and beyond. You know, it's, it's a widely recognized instrument throughout the world. Um, so that's, that's ultimately what I was trying to get at with, with my, my, my long story of uh, engaging with tabla. Yeah, thank you so much. And, and I think that's something I um, sort of do experience um, as, as somebody who plays sarangi, but then sarangi, if you look into the musicological treatises, it's always spoken in terms of um, sarangi as is uh, used in, in India um, in, in general, right? Like the, the raga system and such, but learning um, Nepali sarangi with my teacher, uh, Bharat Nepali at Kathmandu University, um, there were so many melodies that we learned and, and my initial Hindustani classical training would often sort of, you know, push me towards, hey, what's the raga? What's the note here? And my professor would be like, well, you just learn by doing, um, just, you know, learning by imitation, um, because I think that wasn't the, the methodology that he was, or pedagogy that, that he was sort of uh, inculcating in me. And then I deeply relate to what you're saying in, in terms of how tabla is being thought of as a, a classical instrument, but then there are other spaces where it is um, used as well. Thank you so much. I, I really love that um, that sort of discussion. Um, and also moving on towards um, the the other things, how how music travels um, in in different spaces or instruments traveling in different spaces. Uh, I, I'm I'm thinking of. Um, I think Peter Manuel's book on cassette culture, in which he talks about how cassettes, you know, the media format contemporary for that period of time, of course, um, not only helped, uh, but this sort of larger dissemination of musics across South Asia. Although I think in my humble opinion, um, that book largely sidelines conversations or experiences of other South Asian uh, countries and spaces or of music making. Um, and I think we did 
briefly speak on this uh, in, in our in our informal conversation. But um, and I think uh, you know media is also one of uh, your research interests. Um, how would you describe uh, the role that media plays um, in the accessibilities or democratization of musics um, that you research or the musics you perform or musics you, you theorize? Um, I'm thinking of also how largely, um, at least in Nepal, many of the musics that are performed in traditional spaces uh, like temples or, or, or um, religious sites um, they've also sort of moved to the virtual space uh, and people are holding up pujas uh, online, uh, performing music online, performing bhajans online um, and, and, and things like that. Like how YouTube has now become a way for people to learn bhajans as opposed to going to a temple and attending the evening bhajan sessions. Um, so yeah, briefly, I think, how would you see the relation of media and, and, and the musics? Thanks. Yeah, I think um, so. This is a topic that I'm more recently becoming interested in, um, having done research mostly at shrines. But um, there are so many directions that I think I could go with this, with this, um, with this music. Not the least because um, if you just kind of conceptualize devotional sound in Bangladesh in a much more general way, you'll see that it's ubiquitous and everywhere, um, from uh, from not only shrines. But um, you know, large mass sermons, which have their own kind of uh, rhythmic cadences and and um, um, and performance uh, aesthetics, to you know, to urban concert stages, to melas, right? This is a mela, a mela. We know this word throughout South Asia. Local festivals of various kinds, even strikes and parades. Uh, there's there's a you know a legacy of protest culture in Bangladesh, which or the playback of sound uh, you know, on the back of an auto rickshaw or a or a drus dr bus driving by, uh, or the sonic architecture of you know. Of memorials and, and mausoleums, so many different things um, that I recently started to um, started to think about. Um, but um, one thing that I did notice uh, within the shrines themselves, with regard to this debate genre and this community, this Boyati community, I noticed um, how media is in many ways a part of the ambience, the devotional ambience of the performance. So, for example. Um, every shrine has a committee. You have a committee, you have a board, and on that committee um, are often people who are kind of like empresarios. They're actually looking for talent for Boyatis to hire on the death anniversary of the, of the interned saint, which is the, generally the largest time in, a, in, in the year when someone would offer pilgrimage to that particular shrine. Um, so Boyatis, in other words, and shrine committees have this kind of very symbiotic relationship with one another. And they have collectively together um, produced at these kind of almost experimental shrines uh, a sound for that shrine. And um, to the point where shrines that are part of this particular venue that are trying to get into the venue, trying to become more popular, will hire boyatis to create certain songs or certain debate genres specific to their shrine. So in other words, and, and of course these things get recorded, right? And they get recorded and get passed on. So there is this sort of, they almost become like um, a part of the sonic architecture of the shrine. Um, they're, in, they're enlisted not only to perform there, but also at newer emerging shrines of recently deterred saints um, to sort of create a new musical ambience for that particular shrine, 
which is uh, kind of a fascinating thing to think about. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And then I'm, I'm thinking of how, um, as you mentioned, you know, sonic markings of space and shrines. And I'm thinking of how sounds not only mark spaces, but also our, our, our memories and our, our ethnographic experiences in, in general. Um, could, could you elaborate uh, certain um, saints you mentioned are not um, allowed to perform in certain spaces, or did I get that wrong? To create a certain space soundscape for a shrine. Well, so I, I should say something about the the general nature of shrines in, in Bangladesh. So, you know, shrines are extremely varied, and I sort of alluded to this earlier. And um, Boyati musicians perform at specific types of shrines. Um, there are specific types of shrines um, where they perform, and often they are shrines of, uh, in some cases, um, very well-known figures, but more often than not, uh, lesser-known figures. Um, and that sort of... Um, uh, uh, the, the sort of the lesser known figures allows this sort of experimentation to happen. This this debate genre is experimental in nature, um, and so um, basically these smaller um, shrines have enlisted boyatis as a way of finding a place in a larger and very confusing network of shrines. Some of which have music, some of which don't have music, and even if they do have music, maybe very specific forms of music which have nothing to do with the debate genre at all. So that's what I meant by that sort of symbiotic relationship that these uh, smaller shrines have had with Boyatis. They're, they collectively have created this musical space of their own in an otherwise bewildering network of shrines and shrine pieties. Um, and so in the process, have uh, the Boyatis have become a part of sort of developing um, a musical legacy for these for newly elect, er, erected shrines that hire Boyati musicians to perform at them. So pivoting off of, of, of the experience, experimental and, and sonic references uh, you mentioned that um, have such a big role in, 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 in shrines. Um, I'm also reminded that um, we did plan on, on talking about uh, a question in our meeting earlier, um, the experiential uh, and the sensorial. Um, and for you know many of us who are yet to venture out onto the field or for most of us who got interested in ethnomusicology um, because of the aspect of ethnography and, and fieldwork. Um, what is, you know, of the many, and I know this is a, this might be really difficult to sort of pinpoint, but what is one of the most uh, memorable um, um, fieldwork uh, or field experience um, that you had uh, while, while researching? Hmm. Well, um... Let me let me start by telling you some of the complications I felt, and perhaps you can you can um, Suyash jump in here too because I know that you have most likely felt similar types yeah. of negotiations in your own work. I I felt when I first went into the field as a graduate student, there were I think several things that I felt, um, which relate to um, being a Bangladeshi but not being a Bangladeshi, mm -hmm. um, and also being uh, someone who was trying to sort of. Uh, get a degree in ethnomusicology, but also be a musician. And I think those were dichotomies to some of the people that I met and confronted. And that was something that I very much, I felt had to navigate. And I'll, I'll mention something about that and lead to why I ended up working with Boyatis and why, why I thought it was a memorable experience. Um, so one thing that I, I, I constantly felt in the field was, um, you know, I obviously, I'm sure, made assumptions about people and situations, despite my best intentions. 
But of course, people made assumptions about me that I had to navigate as well. Um, and one of those was that, you know, I looked Bengali. I spoke Bengali uh, with an American accent. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, I could tolerate the food. I could navigate my way around in the way that a native would. But I also had, you know, like certain mannerisms and certain responses that clearly made me not Bengali. Mm -hmm. And those often led to, you know, sometimes dead ends, right? Or, or just... Um, um, it allowed me to not go to certain places. There was also this dichotomy of sort of um, saying, yeah, I, I am someone who wants to study these things, but I also want to learn the music. And I think too many people, they looked at me like, you know, you should be doing one or the other. Are you a, a scholar in training or are you a musician in training? And it was the combination of the two that sometimes um, um, there was a conflict of interest. Um, um, what made working with Boyati so memorable is that they consider themselves both scholars and musicians. Um, I'll tell you a little story. The first one of the uh, Boyatis that I first started working with, his name was Poryamal Shorkar. And um, after knowing him for some time, I, I remember taking my first picture of him and he said, let me get everything set. And he wanted to take a picture on his balcony of his front house. He pulled every single book from his home and every single musical instrument from his home. And he wanted to make sure that he was situated amongst both of them, you know. And I think that very much um, in some ways sim symbolizes what a boy at the, how he, he, he or she underst understood, understands themselves to be. And uh, there was, so, so some, a lot of these early um, conversations that I had with boy at the artists were very memorable, but because I didn't, I, I felt like I wasn't always constant trying to um, define myself to them. They just, they just, I think, and I, I hope that they saw me in, in some ways as trying to learn about things that they were interested in. You know, they have a scholarly uh, side to their work because they, they do this dialectical debate. Um, so, you know, they, they, they research topics um, uh, to sing songs about or to even bamboozle their, their opponent with some sort of, you know, um, more um, lesser known point. Um, but they're also clearly musicians as well, and they and they, you know they play. You mentioned the sarindas. The, the sarinda actually exists in Bangladesh as well. It's a three-string instrument there, and that's the tr traditional instrument that the boyati holds when he or she sings. And it actually has very strong sort of like a tradition of bardic storytelling in Bangladesh. Nowadays, they tend to use the violin instead, um, for you know some variety of reasons. But you know they do very much see themselves as musicians and. And, and, and scholars. And I think some of my most memorable experiences in Bangladesh were with them precisely because, you know, I, like I said, I didn't, I didn't feel like I, I was always having to um, define who I was to them. Um, you know, we just sort of had, in many cases, very natural conversations over, you know, cups of tea and tuning, if you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and I, do, I do relate to, to, to some of that. Um, Especially, I'm, I'm also reminded of um, Jonathan Stocks and um, Joe Chenier's uh, paper on Shadows of the Field book. I think um, chapter on the, it's titled Fieldwork at Home, and and how you know one of the one of the sort of issues is is um, at least the book mentions you know how it's an emotionally investing period of uh, time you spend in the field. Um, and, and for me, it, it, it is particularly in terms of um, how people expect me to be objective, because that's how they have seen 
scholars or social scientists work in Nepal. Um, but then my question to them is always, how can I be objective when I'm emotionally and subjectively in, <laughs> in, 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 in what I do? Um, the, the other question that keeps coming, uh, which is, uh, I, I'm, I'm, you know, I believe very uh, pertinent to, to uh, um, our sort of individual uh, backstory is um, people often end up asking me, if you're an ethnomusicologist, why don't you play or perform? Uh, why do I see you with this, you know, recording device or, or taking notes? That happened to me in my very first uh, fieldwork experience in, in Bhaktapur in Nepal, um, where the locals wanted me to perform with them. And the best I could do is, yeah, I can take a stick and do the stick dance, but how am I going to take notes? So how many you know, or much of the sort of methodological training that, that sort of I received as an undergrad um, would sort of be directly in contrast to how I was expected or seen um, in the field. Mm. Um, and I'm not just alluding to, of course, the, the ethnographer's gaze uh, does make it uh, to the ethnography, but I'm also thinking of the, the, um, the people's gaze on the scholar and, and, and the effect it has. Um, so, uh, yeah, and, and, you know, I mean, you mentioned Shadows in the Field, and that's a book that's gone through more than one edition, right? Which, which mm -hmm. you know, attests to the fact that these are issues, uh, you know, reflexive ethnography is an issue that just kind of rears its head every decade or so. And, and, and you know, now, you know, with, with in so many different forms, it's always coming back with some sort of relevancy. With the second edition, I think they introduced the uh, more uh, chapters on sort of internet ethnography, which mm -hmm. wasn't a part of the first edition. Um, and there are many others that you and I are alluding to now that are, you know, a part of a part of this, uh, this growing body of work now. Um, yeah, when you were talking, I was thinking about uh, uh, further my experiences um, uh, and sort of this uh, in Bangladesh and sort of being called on to perform when people knew that I was a performer. That's sort of like, you know, show dog sort of a, kind of a, a experience. And that was also very confusing, too, because amongst Boyatis, I felt very comfortable. But amongst others, it was a very uh, different experience because, you know, Boyatis... What's interesting about them is that you can't musically categorize what they do. In fact, there isn't necessarily a specific type of music that is specific to them. They, they're more like an aggregate, aggregate of different musical genres and poetic styles over the ages that they have combined in this sort of bricolage, this kind of pastiche, which is what Bichar Ghan, this debate genre is. Um, so you can't say, you know, play me a Boyati song. It doesn't work that way. You know, Boyati songs are kind of like all kinds of songs put together. Um, and sometimes, you know, other people didn't really make that connection. Even Boyatis in, in the larger public mind, you know, they, if you ask a Bangladeshi, what is a Boyati, they'll say, I've heard it. I've heard the name. I know they're musicians, but I can't tell you what kind of music they perform. Mm -hmm. And Boyatis themselves will also introduce themselves in a variety of very um, different ways, depending on the circumstance. So that leads to all kinds of interesting musical confrontations that happen, mm -hmm. both inside and outside their community. Yeah, yeah, and 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 I'm also thinking of, um, as you mentioned, bricolage. Um, the same suyash can be seen differently by different people, but mm -hmm. the same suyash is also invested in one particular dissertation topic. Um, <laughs> and, and 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 how, uh, what I'm alluding to is is um, this sort of you know all the different roles we play as as ethnographers, especially doing fieldwork at home or, or places that, that have a homely connection to us. Um, and, and, and this sort of, in a sense, complexifying it, but also trying to simplify it because yes. 
we're correctly sort of tr trying to translate what my ethnomusicological method or, or process means um, is to to my interlocutors and collaborators and and experts in the field at the same time I'm also trying to sort of um, translate what they have uh, you know wisened me about or what they have educated me about to a, a larger ethnomusicological sort of society right so uh, it's 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 fascinating how um, I think also I've I've, all, I've often thought how fieldwork in, in in these spaces also directly sort of challenges the the preconceived notion or or this sort of baggage that the discipline has had where you know you need to far off you know to travel far off to do fieldwork but that doesn't need to be the case all the time um, but even at home there is complexities right. Yeah, yeah, and, and um, you know, you mentioned home, and you know, uh, to add to the complexities, you know, I, I have, I, I'm married to someone who is a native born, um, and so we have, you know, what you might I jokingly refer to as 2.5 children, so the 2.5 generation, uh, born to one native um, born and one to one uh, born or raised abroad, and you know, um, they they see in their own way, try to make sense of the work that I do and the things that I that I um, that I, the music that I play, one is nine years old, one is five years old, I have two children. And children have this way of sort of just like um, being very abrupt about their observations in a sort of very, um, you know, uh, unapologetic way. That can be very revealing um, as we try to navigate our way through these things that you were saying, like, you know, we're, we're all of these things, but we're also doing, we're also one, mm -hmm. you know, um, and um, that is increasingly kind of an interesting aspect of, of my work is just thinking about, um, the sort of things that the, that my children bring up, and, and also being con the concerns I have for them, for progeny and pos you know posterity and so on and so forth, is is increasingly something um, that that sort of becomes a part of this uh, this ethnography that we're doing. Yeah, absolutely, and and the multiplicity um, and sort of uh, I I do also know that you you're largely invested in in public scholarship and public ethnography, so you know that that multiplicity of of <laughs> our identities and also what we do as, as as you know there's written work but then there's also performing you know performing work um and how we perform ourselves as as ethnographers in the field and how to me it's it's very fascinating how um and this has also happened to many of my colleagues i'm, I'm pretty sure when you go and ask somebody a question and based on the fact that they've been asked the same question by other um scholars in humanities or social sciences, you know, they, oh, should I give you the same answer that I gave, gave so-and-so? Um, to do a research or a survey and I have to like basically say, hold on, like you, you, <laughs> what am I to do here? You know, the, the complexity of um, how people have also encountered us, not, not only, you know, we have um, sort of been in their spaces. There have been other scholars like us who have been in that space, and and the complexity that happens to that. Yeah, I think you know we'll be continuing to do this sort of navigation and thinking about it for the rest of our lives. Yeah, truly, and and I think navigation is is the right word that that I, I should have gone for, which is, it's it's constantly sort of renegotiated, renegotiated, and that's how we 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 make sense of the world, and we and they make sense of, of like uh, the world makes sense of us. Um, thinking of this multiplicity, I'm also uh, sort of 
um, thinking about, you know, uh, we're still within the pandemic sphere and one cannot do without talking about how, how COVID-19 has, has affected um, as someone like you who's deeply invested um, and for a long time um, has been working on performance and, and public um, facing um, public scholarship work. That's how I, I sort of look at it. Um, I, and this is, uh, we did talk a little bit about this, about, uh, you know, collaborative work uh, during the pandemic. Um, would you like to share uh, what, what, what has been happening um, in your world in terms of collaborative um, musicking? Yeah, I, and, you know, I, I would love to hear your insights as well. And I, I know a bit about um, the fact that you have been engaging virtually over the last years as well um, with your musical collaboration. So I um, would love to learn about your insights as well. Um, yeah, you know, it's, it's interesting. Um, certainly from the standpoint of Indian classical music, it's been very strange to try to engage um, with, with that um, during the pandemic, um, despite very much a want and need for it, you know, this sort of the, the, this, the, the human touch and human connection. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, Indian classical music is also so, I mean, there's such, there's such a culture of intimacy in the performance, which, you know, when you're sitting in front of a computer screen is, is almost eliminated um, yeah. in many ways, um, you know, and you can try to mask it by, you know, saying, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to prepare a click track and for the next 12 bars improvise, but then on the 13th bar, come back to the reprise, you know, and you know, it, 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 it works and it sounds nice, but it also feels like a little bit like a sham, you know. <laughs> Like mm -hmm. you're not quite doing it. Um, so there's all these interesting challenges um, and sometimes disappointments. At the same time, I think um, uh, the pandemic and musical instruction and pedagogy has opened up a new door for me. So I started teaching tabla for the first time during the pandemic. I had not taught tabla before. And frankly, I had no interest in teaching tabla, not the least because I'm not, you know, I don't do this professionally or, or you know, specifically. But I was approached to do it through an organization, um, and uh, I was really missing, um, you know, like we all were, um, sort of musical interaction when we were completely locked in lockdown. And so I started teaching tabla, and I continue to do it basically online. It's the only medium that I've ever engaged with tabla instruction. I have no other source, no other point of reference <laughs> except for the virtual. Um, but what I found was so interesting about it is that people came to the idea knowing that it was uncon un unconventional in the first place. So it allowed me to sort of break rules, uh, if I can use that expression, without worrying too much about the consequences. Um, and that was important to me because I was teaching mostly second and third generation uh, Indian Americans, um, uh, some of them the age of seven or eight, some of them in college. Mm -hmm. but but I wanted them to have a certain understanding of tabla. I wanted to sort of streamline the experience for them in a way that it wasn't streamlined for me. And I think if we were in a more traditional setting, that would have been, um, there would be much more to negotiate. You know, much more, you would have, I would have had to place a rationale as to why I was deviating from the traditional way of learning, for example, a particular composition, blah, blah, blah. Whereas online, there was, it was, it, there was, a, there was just all, from the very beginning, this sort of spirit of experimentation. <laughs> because no one knew how to do it, right? Uh, certainly over Zoom. And in ways that, that was very um, liberating for me because I had, I had, uh, I had frust uh, not frustrations, I had, um, let's say, res reservations about teaching tabla in the first place. Um, and um, doing it over Zoom allowed some of those um, 
those inadequacies to sort of not be a part of the of as much of a part of the picture, but just to play music with someone, teach them what you know, and start from an angle that was useful to them. You know that those sorts of things really, I think, um, were enabled by the Zoom interface in a way that perhaps it wouldn't have been otherwise. If that makes sense. Yeah, and 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 for our listeners, um, Dr. Kibria's uh, YouTube channel has. I would believe a few examples of, of these um, virtual collaborations, right, Dr. Kibra? Yeah, yeah. There, there are some, you know, uh, there's uh, some that went that went right, many that went uh, sideways a bit, but but I'm proud of them nonetheless. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, and and thank you for sharing that on on YouTube and 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 this experience as well um, for the podcast. Um, in 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 my own experience, it has been. Um, I think the the very title track that uh, listeners uh, when you open Soundlore every episode uh, the song Corona Wave um, I was fortunate to do that with uh, my friends Kurt Bear um, and Ben Danner um, you know working on hey like we since we can't hang out together uh, how about you know making music together so you know composing music and you know transferring MIDI files. And working on them in three different spaces and three different times, um, so I, I I would say that yes, certain academic practices such as conferences, like um, you know, whereas it used to be uh, in person at least, you know, my first SEM conference was in person, and the second one is virtual. Um, so I do see uh, in many ways how things have gone sort of. Um, rightly in in so many ways things have gone a bit frustratingly um and i think also collaborating with, with kyle recently um you know tapping into 80s nostalgia which i i have to say that i didn't experience that firsthand but i sort of gathered the nostalgic elements through commodified nostalgia or what was transferred to me by pop culture um, so yeah, I, I totally agree with you. I think there's much potential happening there um, in these virtual spaces and also how the hybridity sort of certainly adds so much um, to it. Um, I'm recalling AFS conference that happened recently in Harrisburg and, and how much of it was in person and also virtual. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, and I think there's so much happening, um, especially in, in terms of how folks with the technological expertise are, are also, I'm not saying that they weren't interested prior to this, but, you know, in, a, in an increased sense of the word, how, you know, people are looking for making all sorts of uh, multi-sensorial or multimodal experience available um, virtually uh, to people. So, and I think we will see more conversations and, and uh, experiments and, and collaborations happening because of these factors and other factors of course yeah uh, thanks for your insights that's really interesting I, I feel like we're both kind of alluding to a number of things but one thing that i was thinking was is you know when you do these sorts of virtual things um, certainly performances whether they're synchronous or asynchronous um yeah there's a spontaneity that is lost but there's also a a, a reflection a mm. time of reflection that is that is allowed um, because of the piecemeal process of composing something, for example, that I think has its own insights, yeah, into into making something, making a piece of music. 
Yeah, truly. And I, and I sincerely hope and pray that there comes a time when latency is not an issue, where people <laughs> can be in different spaces and perform music together. Because I think that would that is one one pushback that I have heard from um, electronic music producers or, or people who love recording and making music live. But I also mm -hmm. remember the very first semester of, of COVID, uh, the OIS, the Office of International Students here at um, Services here at IU, they were trying to do something of a, you know, just to keep the students in, in positive mood and, and, and vibing. Um, there was this uh, K-pop sort of tutorial happening on Instagram or one of the spaces, was it Zoom? Oh. But because of the fact that music was transferring very late to each of our devices. Oh, I see. It was it was really difficult, but then I think Zoom improved, and I'm thinking of Navruz, uh, which um, one of our students uh, in the department, Esgi Benley, um, she helped organize with the Navruz Student Association. Um, in that Navruz, I remember how we did have um, a dance tutorial happening, and that sort of issue of latency wasn't there so much as it was in the first instance of of, of you know learning how to dance online. Yeah, I think I think Zoom figured out quickly that you know other people, including musicians, were using the were using the medium and 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 made some changes to their their software. Uh, thankfully, that allowed us to at least get some of the latencies out of the way, but not all of them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Thank you. And 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 I and yeah, I I think I I hope Zoom keeps figuring out. And I I do also think it is kind of also important in, on our end of things as ethnomusicologists or sound study scholars or musicians and performers sort of think of that um, in, in, in ways of thinking what is it or where is it that we want to go in terms of uh, virtuality or virtual modality of music performances um, and I'm not saying to totally sideline the live performance because that ultimately is is what we are looking for or we're taking inspiration from right yeah well, absolutely yeah. and I'm, I'm glad we had this uh, this this thing as the final question because it definitely is an exciting um sort of avenue um, yeah let's let's hope it you know as you say let's hope there's still there's still um you know positive um things to explore uh in there as we as we move out of the pandemic hopefully yeah uh dr kibria at the at the end um your final thoughts uh your final um sort of comments um um on, on on anything that you that you want to share or, or also your your maybe as as is the tradition in in uh, um, south asia your advice to to students and and especially who are just you know venturing onto ethnomusicology um or the world of ethnomusicology and performance what would you like to share well um i feel like um there's a large body of, of people in our department um, who, who make music and do it well. Mm -hmm. um, uh, despite the fact that, you know, for us, ethnomusicology here is, is not in a department or a school of music. Um, but I think that's kind of what makes it so unique. And I, I, um, I, love, I love that I'm learning this and meeting people like you. Mm -hmm. And I, it's a very simple piece of uh, advice, but I hope that you know, we all continue to make music, even if it's not a part of our, the curriculum that we navigate through. 
as we are in our degrees, um, because it's 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 really important um, not only for um, the academic rigor but for the sanity. <laughs> yeah. um, so uh, a very very small and very very simple piece of advice to myself and to everyone else, um, and I know that we are all kind of doing this, most of us at least. Um, and, and I hope that you and I can can make music in the, in the future as well. Oh, thank you. Thank you for that invitation. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Definitely. And, and I, I include Jeremy, of course, in this conversation and, and anyone else for that matter, um, since the three of us at least are definitely all musicians. Yeah, thank you. Um, so, yeah, um, thank you so much, Dr. Kibrea, once again. Uh, thank you for your, your insights. And, and also, I do see a lot of inspiration that I'm drawing on, you know, currently having listened to you um and also this is very memorable so thank you so much thank you um and um i really appreciate the the, the questions and and the insight that you've provided uh, you know this wasn't this wasn't um a format where i was talking about my research we did so much more than that and that's ultimately what made it so enjoyable for me so thanks for uh, inviting me to the podcast Soundlore is an official production of the Department of Folklore and Ethnomusicology at Indiana University. Produced by David McDonald and Jeremy Reed. Music provided by Pagliacci and some other clowns. Engineered by Amanda Luke. Questions, comments, or ideas for future episodes? Leave us a message at 812-855-0396. If you haven't already, please subscribe to Soundlore on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or wherever fine podcasts are downloaded. Thank you for listening.